T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence starts. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, it looks good, Wally. Somebody must be leaving the Building shaking. We're getting that buffeting we've become used to. What a moment. Man on the way to the moon. It was obvious from the very beginning that even though two men would touch down together inside the same spacecraft on the lunar surface, the one who put his boot in the powder of the moon first would become one of the most famous names in human history. In the early days of putting together the Apollo 11 mission, there was debate about which astronaut should go first. Buzz Aldrin made the case that it should be him. Look, he had to try. Of course. Who wouldn't? (laughs) But in the end, the roles of the two astronauts in the Eagle and the design of the limb itself determined that Neil Armstrong would be the bigger name in the history books. As mission commander and the person steering the limb, he was positioned nearest the hatch that would lead out to the lunar surface. There's not enough room inside the limb to safely switch places regardless of desire, so Neil Armstrong would be the first man on the moon. Welcome to Liftoff from Relay FM. We're marking the 50th anniversary of each crewed Apollo flight. And today, oh, it's the big one. We're talking about Apollo 11. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace and ExpressVPN. My name is Jason Snell. And because I am the person who talks first on odd-numbered episodes of Liftoff, that means I am standing on the lunar surface waiting for my co-host, Stephen Hackett, to join me. Hey, Jason, this is a huge episode, but can I come out of the limb now? Yeah, it's time. Come on. Come on out. Coming down the ladder. With it being the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing, we know there is going to be a lot of great coverage out there. I have been inundated with fantastic documentaries and and movies and TV shows. And there's so much out there uh, and amazing podcasts as well. We thought we would focus on a couple of aspects of this mission that we felt weren't as well known as the descent to the lunar surface. So instead of our normal template of talking through the whole mission chronologically, we're going to take a look at three distinct components of it. Sounds good to me. All right, so let's start with the Lunar Landing Research Vehicle number one, otherwise known as LLRV-1. Oh, these names are so great. Uh, this vehicle was he- designed to help train astronauts to fly and land the that weird-looking spidery lunar module. In an interview in 2001, Neil Armstrong said it looked like a tin Campbell soup can sitting on top of some legs. <laughs> He's not wrong. <laughs> no. The LLRV took off and landed vertically and looked a bit like the limb itself with four legs coming down from a central platform where the pilot sat with all his controls. Under that platform was a single jet engine mounted on a gimbal, powered to cancel out about five-sixths of the total weight of the vehicle to roughly match the moon's gravity. 
The main engine was augmented by hydrogen peroxide rockets to help steer and tilt the vehicle. The LLRV had been built in the early 1960s. Over 200 training flights took place between 1967 and the end of the Apollo program. It had a maximum altitude of 500 feet, not that far up there, meaning if anything went wrong, the astronaut had seconds to eject from the vehicle. On May 6, 1968, that exact thing happened. Neil Armstrong had to eject from LLRV-1 at a mere 200 feet or about 60 meters above the ground after the vehicle's attitude control thrusters had run out of fuel due to the high winds during the test. In the film of this flight, it is very clear to see that Armstrong has completely lost control of the craft. It's really scary looking. (laughs) You know, the way this thing works, it's in a stable hovering position the jet engine is is holding it up so it's it's coming down very slowly like it was on the uh, going going to the moon and then all of a sudden it's up on its side it's falling to the ground it's it's just like just one you know big jerk and it's kind of like completely out of control armstrong's parachute opened when he ejected for four seconds he had four seconds of parachute drag to slow him down before he hit the ground After this, LLRV flights were suspended. NASA was about to take receipt of a new trainer dubbed the Lunar Lander Training Vehicle, or LLTV. Uh, That came complete with a revised and more stable design. In fact, this vehicle was used to train the bulk of the Apollo astronauts. And while there was an accident during its development, no astronaut had to eject from it during training flights. In their descent to the lunar surface, Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin found themselves above a surface filled with rocks and boulders, some of them the size of a car. Armstrong ended up taking manual control of the limb, flying it rapidly across the surface of the moon, kind of like a helicopter, looking for a smooth place to land. No doubt his many hours in the LLRV and LLTV helped him land. Armstrong said this about the LLTV after returning from the moon. This is a quote. Eagle flew very much like the lunar landing training vehicle, which I had flown more than 30 times at Ellington Air Force Base near the Space Center. I had made from 50 to 60 landings in that trainer, and the final trajectory I flew to the landing was very much like those flown in practice. Armstrong's comfortable familiarity put the pair on the moon safely. 60 seconds. Lights on. Forward. Forward. 40 feet down, two and a half. Picking up some dust. Take that out. Four forward, drift into the right a little. 30 seconds. Forward, drift. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create an online store or have a portfolio to show off your work. Maybe you're a writer and you want to spin up a blog. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that lets you do all of those things. And you don't have to become some sort of server admin. There's nothing to install. There's no patches to worry about. Squarespace has all of that stuff covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. Earlier this week, I had a phone call with a, a group here in town. They've got an aging website, and they're looking to build something new. And, of course, I pointed them 
to Squarespace. So going through, picking out templates, talking about what we can do, and I think it's going to work out really well. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for this show. Once again, that's squarespace.com liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. I'd like to thank Squarespace for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move. Make your next website. After touching down, the mission plan called for a four-hour rest period before the initial EVA, but that was scrapped. You land on the moon, and then you're going to take a nap. That seems really unlikely. Is that yeah, not not, not going to happen. I'm not stressed out at all. Yeah. I didn't just land a <laughs> lunar vehicle. I'm going to take a nap now. No, mm-hmm. no. So they... Uh, they, they didn't do that. No. So the crew and the limb began to prepare to open the hatch. This was quite the process. They had to put on their bulky EVA suits and life support backpacks, which proved uh, more difficult in the tiny lunar module cabin than it had in training. And after three and a half hours of prep and checklist, the crew depressurized Eagle and opened the door. Video footage of Neil Armstrong's descent was captured by a slow-scan television camera that was mounted to the limb. On the way down the ladder, Armstrong paused and pulled a D-ring that deployed the modular equipment stowage assembly from a, against the side of the descent module, and doing that turned on the camera. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming Okay, I just checked uh, getting back up to that first step. Uh, it's uh, it doesn't collapse too far, but uh, it's adequate to get back up. Roger, we copy. That's a pretty good little jump. Okay. I'm um, uh, at the foot of the ladder. The lamb footbeds are only uh, uh, depressed in the surface about. Uh, one or two inches, uh, although the surface appears to be uh, very, very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. Ground mass uh, is very fine. Yeah, I'm going to step off the lamb now. That's one small step for man. I want to talk about the slow sand camera for just a second. It was incompatible with broadcast television. NASA received the signal at the Parks Radio Telescope in Australia, showing it on a special monitor, get this, with a conventional TV camera pointed at that monitor to send the video to broadcast networks around the world. Yeah, it shot at 10 frames a second, and that was a thing that uh, you often did with film, for example. Um, you do the, the kinescope kind of thing where they took uh, pictures of video on film and stored that. This was old school. How do we do standards conversion, which is we shoot one camera picture with a different camera. Um, now, NASA did record that raw video signal that was received in Australia. And by all accounts, it was a vastly higher quality picture than what we're used to seeing from the moon landing. Uh, but those tapes were never converted. Nobody apparently got around to trying to find a way to uh, keep them around and then 
improve the final archival footage. Um, and they were apparently lost in the 1970s and are believed to have been destroyed. Uh, they did search for them in the last decade or so, and they couldn't find them anywhere. And everybody, that is how we lost the pristine copy of the most historic video ever made. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, the documentary Apollo 11 does show Armstrong stepping on the surface from a different vantage point, And I believe that was actually shot by Buzz Aldrin looking out one of the windows of the limb. Yeah, it may have been a mounted camera, but it, you can actually see Buzz's reflection in the window mm -hmm. as you're seeing Neil Armstrong on the surface. It blew me away when I saw that for the first time. So there are a couple different angles of this moment, just not at the highest quality. Yeah, no, who, 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 it won't matter. It's yeah. not that big an event, whatever. <laughs> anyway, in addition to pulling that D-ring and turning on the camera and doing his thing, Neil Armstrong also uncovered a plaque on the ladder of the lamb, which read, Here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969 AD. We came in peace for all mankind. It included the signatures of the three crew members of Apollo 11, as well as President Nixon's. And of course, that's still there because the descent module still on the moon. Yep. 20 minutes after Armstrong came down the ladder, Aldrin joined him and then moved the camera to a tripod about 30 meters from the base of the limb. While waiting for his fellow crew member, Armstrong collected what was known as the contingency soil sample. This was a small sample that could be stored in a bag tucked into the pocket of his pressure suit. And so the idea is that if the crew had to abort their EVA suddenly and leave the surface, at least they'd have some small sample of lunar material to return home. Aldrin and Armstrong inspected the limb for any damage that may have impacted their return to the command service module being flown in orbit around the moon by Michael Collins. Sort of like when you um, rent a car, you have to check to see yeah, if there were any dents. Exactly. It's just pr just prudent. After that, they set up an American flag at the landing site and uh, took a just casual phone call with the president of the United States, just calling the moon, <laughs> as you do. At this point, the two men had different tasks. Aldrin completed what was called the Trajectory of Lunar Soil When Kicked experiment, which is exactly what it sounds like. I, I did this all the time in school, the, yeah. this experiment. Well, probably not the moon, but on the playground. But it's the same thing. You kick the surface and report back to the ground uh, how the dust reacts. Just kicking the moon. It's a it's a usual thing. Take that moon. Aldrin also was responsible for noting any perceived temperature differences inside his suit when standing in the sun versus standing in the shadows. As we know, they would have to rotate the Apollo spacecraft in what they uh, called barbecue mode in order to kind of even out the temperature between the sun side and the shade side. And they were concerned about whether that would be an issue with the spacesuits. But what Buzz Aldrin found was that there were only minor temperature differences, mostly localized to the helmet, and it wasn't that big a deal. Meanwhile, while Armstrong was busy collecting additional small samples of lunar material before the two regrouped and unpacked a passive seismometer and a laser ranging reflector from the storage area on the lower section of the limb. The seismometer was designed to collect information about the interior of the moon and detect any moonquakes. Actually, not that different from InSight, which is on Mars right now. The experiment, though, failed after just three weeks, but there were more advanced seismometers to come deployed by the crews of Apollo 12, 14, 15, and 16. Uh, so we'll talk about them more as we get to those missions. Uh, and the last of those lasted until 1977. The laser ranging retroreflector was a device designed to reflect a laser beam from Earth directly back to its sender. These were also placed by Apollo 14 and 15 later, and the three are used to provide a measurement of the round trip distance between the Earth and the moon. 
Out of all the Apollo experiments across the six missions that landed, only this program is still returning data. You can see why. There's no moving parts, right? It's just basically a mirror. Amazingly, though, the distance of the moon can be measured to an accuracy of about three centimeters with these tools. Yeah, and anybody who's got the right hardware can do this because you're essentially shooting a laser beam to the reflector point and making sure that you're getting it back. And then when you turn it off, you can precisely measure the, the amount of time before the beam stops and you've got a distance and it's incredibly accurate. It's pretty cool. Another experiment that they laid out on the surface uh, was actually attached to the passive seismic experiment and it was called the lunar dust detector. It was not just carried out by Apollo 11, but also 12, 14, and 15. And this LDD measured the power output from a set of solar cells. So it's a solar panel, and they watched to see how dusty it got, so how much the solar signal would get suppressed. And most notably, when the LEM fired off the ascent module and left the surface, because that would pick up a little bit of dust. And it was a little experiment, like, how much dust did we kick up? when we when we fired off and they uh, they used this tool to find out the sensors were also used to monitor long-term health of solar cells when left on the surface of the moon of course being exposed to radiation and thermal expansion far beyond what we see here on earth yeah lots of uh, things you can learn about uh, something that we didn't know before which is what if you put equipment on the moon and leave it there what happens to it there was um, also the solar wind composition experiment this was an aluminum foil sheet facing the sun uh, seems pretty simple. The theory here is that solar wind particles would embed themselves into the foil. It was taken down after 77 minutes and returned to the Earth, where researchers found isotopes of several different noble gases in the foil. Of course, the lunar samples are probably what are most well known when we talk about the crew's work on the moon. Armstrong and Aldrin collected 22 kilograms of material, including 50 rocks and several samples of the fine lunar dust, including that contingency uh, little pouch he had in his pocket in case things went wrong. Additionally, they returned two core samples harvested by hammering collection tubes some 12 centimeters below the surface. So these are hollow tubes. They hammer into the surface and you can get material that's beyond just the dust and rocks you can see with your eyes. And from here, you get, if you've ever been to a space museum that's got a little like moon rock sample that you can touch that's been rubbed smooth by all the people who've been touching it over years and years and years, it's uh, all from this stuff, these, these moon rocks. It's, uh, it's pretty great. They, there are two different kinds of rocks that came back from the moon in via Apollo 11. There are basalts, which are rocks that are formed when lava cools and becomes solid. And there are breccias, which are fragments of older rocks and bits of meteorites that have been stuck together. The work of collecting and packing these materials was quite demanding, with the crew often hitting metabolic limits set by the flight surgeon. All this work took the crew of Apollo 11 about two and a half hours, with Armstrong in total spending about 60 minutes longer on the surface than Aldrin. Once both were back in the limb and attached to it for life support, they tossed their life support backpacks, shoe covers, and other equipment they didn't need anymore out the hatch back to the surface before closing it and repressurizing Eagle. Now, that's littering. <laughs> space littering. Yeah. Uh, moon littering. It's even better than space littering. Moon littering. Lunar littering. Now, they did also leave back some things that we wouldn't consider litter. There was an Apollo 1 patch. There was a half-inch silicon disc containing messages of peace and goodwill from the leaders of 73 countries and some more stuff, too. Watch a Cernit movie, maybe a necklace from his daughter, but probably not. Yeah. Mm. After the EVA, the crew was assigned a rest period 
uh, finally got around to doing that. They didn't have much luck in getting any decent sleep, though. The mission plan called for them to keep their suits on, hooked up to Eagle for air, as the ground was really worried about lunar dust making its way into their lungs. Which is a good thing to worry about because it could be potentially quite dangerous. Um, now, later crews had uh, weird little hammocks that they could hang in the limb, but uh, they weren't really a huge improvement. Anyway, Armstrong and Aldrin didn't get them. <laughs> they, uh, Aldrin uh, curled up on the floor, little uh, astronaut in a spacesuit laying on the floor of a lunar module. And Neil Armstrong tried to doze while uh, sitting up wedged sort of like you're propping yourself against the window in an airplane he was wedged between the ascent modules cover and a little bit of the wall anyway <laughs> maybe they did some meditation i don't know but after about seven hours of, of of trying to get some rest because they wanted them sharper for ascent uh it was time to light that ascent engine and uh rejoin michael collins up in lunar orbit this episode of liftoff is also brought to you by express vpn you might think that nobody would be interested in your online data, but when you browse the web without anything to protect your privacy, you risk hackers, ad companies, and others collecting your data. And it does happen just to regular people, which is why I use and recommend ExpressVPN. It runs in the background of your computer or phone and encrypts your data and hides your public IP address. Just download the app, click to connect, and you're protected. And ExpressVPN was rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It uses new cutting-edge technology called Trusted Server to make sure there's no logs of what you do online. It costs less than $7 a month, and it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. I have several trips lined up over the course of the next few weeks, and you better believe that I'll be using ExpressVPN when I'm traveling. I'm not going to get on airport or hotel Wi-Fi without it. It gives me peace of mind that my browsing my data is safe. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash liftoff. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash liftoff for three months free with a one-year package. Take back your online privacy today. Head to expressvpn.com slash liftoff. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of Liftoff and all of Relay FM. And now, because we are who we are, and we're choosing these interesting different scenes for Apollo 11, we're going to jump ahead a little bit. So on Thursday, July 24th, 1969, Apollo 11 came to an end. Columbia, the command module, and all that was left after they jettisoned the service module and the, the lunar module and everything else, splashed down in the Pacific Ocean southwest of Hawaii. The astronauts were picked up by the USS Hornet and once on board received hugs and handshakes and were flown directly back from Hawaii to New York City for a, a giant ticker tape parade. No, that's not <laughs> not what happened. <laughs> no. Apollo no. 11 may have been over and it may have been a massive success, but for about two more weeks, the astronauts were effectively held prisoner by the government. Today, it seems a little bit silly, but back in the 1960s, NASA felt it would be prudent to be absolutely sure that there weren't poisons or deadly alien forms of life on the moon that would be tracked back by the astronauts and infect everybody on planet Earth. This sort of extreme carefulness or paranoia, if you want to call it that, was it was just a big part of this era. Hmm. Just two months before Apollo 11, Michael Crichton's novel, The Adronomous Strain, was published. It depicts a military satellite landing back on Earth contaminated with 
Alien Machinorisms. It really put people in a mood, is what we're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you've seen the movie, like it, which was later, but the Andromeda Strain is super creepy, and that, that was it was definitely in the in the air. Not the not the alien bioforms, just the paranoia was in the air at the time. And there was actually a federal regulation called the Extraterrestrial Exposure Law that was adopted by NASA in 1969. Not an actual law, like a Congress law, more of a, a guideline law. Sure, but uh, it required a formal quarantine policy for anything returning to Earth after landing on a celestial body. The net result of all of this is that Aldrin, Armstrong, and Collins had to be put on biological, had to put on biological isolation garments, you know, these gray hazmat suits, and then get bathed in iodine, which is probably not super pleasant. Welcome back to Earth, boys. (laughs) When they were welcomed as heroes, no doubt, on the deck of the Hornet, they could barely see what was going on because their face masks were fogging up. Michael Collins writes about this in his book as being uh, very difficult to see what was happening. You're kind of shaking hands with people you can't see. They waved to dignitaries they assumed were there and sailors and then were ushered in to the MQF or mobile quarantine facility. We joke sometimes about how everything involved in space travel is expensive because it has to to be custom made. That's not always the case. This MQF, the Mobile Quarantine Facility, was a uh, converted Airstream trailer, (laughs) basically like a motorhome. And once the astronauts were loaded inside, they basically had to sit there, sit in their camper as the Hornet got. uh, It sailed back to Hawaii. Then they transferred it at the dock. Uh, they, They loaded it on an airplane and they flew it back to Houston. All the while, they're just in their Airstream just hanging out less than glamorous yeah Yeah. then again the airstream must have seemed huge compared to the size of the columbia right (laughs) (laughs) that's a very small module so so everything's relative there's this famous picture of nixon meeting with the astronauts after their landing he flew all the way to hawaii in order to stand on the outside of an airstream trailer as the three astronauts huddled against a window Uh, below the window someone stuck a presidential seal which i think was a nice touch just slide it right on there. Of course, the astronauts' families had flown to Pearl Harbor to meet them there, and all of those reunions were conducted through the glass of this window on the Airstream trailer. There were two other people in the trailer, too. A physician who checked their medical status for signs of alien bugs. I don't know how you do that, but... Yeah, I don't know. Just oh, take their blood pressure, see if it yeah. changes. Uh, as well as a technician who had entered the Columbia to power down the capsule after splashdown. I looked for the name of this technician and I couldn't find it anywhere, but I like that, you know, right? So they pull the astronauts out and they put on their hazmat suits. They douse them with iodine and all that. But somebody actually has to safe the capsule. They have to climb in there. This was a job and flip the switches and all to like power it down and get it like in safe mode. And, and then they close it up. And that guy got to be in the Airstream trailer, too, because he was exposed mm-hmm. uh, like the rest of them were to whatever they brought back from the moon, which was dust, as it turns out, just dust. You may be asking yourself... How sound is the idea of using a camper to quarantine astronauts who might have deadly space germs? (laughs) Answer is not very. Much, much later, it was revealed that the astronauts, they were actually joking about this during the whole thing. They saw like ants getting in from the the outside. (laughs) They saw some cracks in the seals. It was not exactly a pristine, perfectly sealed up Airstream trailer environment. Three and a half days after splashdown, the MQF finally arrived in Houston, like you said, and its five passengers were transferred to better accommodations, this time the LRL, or the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. This was a whole building that was built to take in people and stuff brought back from the moon. Along with any exposed uh, individuals, all the moon rocks and equipment brought back by the crew, cameras and all sorts of stuff, were all brought here and quarantined. You say three and a half days like it's like it's not that. I mean, that was welcome back from the moon, everybody. Three and a half days 
just being carried around in a camper. It's not fun. Mm-mm. But when they get to the L- LRL, this building that they built just for this purpose, the post-mission work really started. The astronauts got debriefed about everything in great de- detail that happened on the mission, but they also got increasingly stir-crazy, and they kept joking about how they had been incarcerated. <laughs> NASA did what it could to keep them entertained. There were movie screenings. Lots of card games, especially gin rummy was a popular choice. Yeah, Armstrong was apparently quite a shark at gin rummy. They also weren't alone. So you had additional doctors, a NASA PR person, some scientists who, again, were accidentally exposed to the samples brought back from the moon. So then he's like, oh, no, you opened this box. Now you have to go into the LRL. Jerry, go into the LRL now. (laughs) It's it's a fun surprise. Yeah, um, it was more full-featured than the Airstream. This is good. It had a bar. It had an exercise room. They could get real food, but they couldn't go anywhere. They were stuck for 18 days. Boy. So welcome back to Earth again, really, until they were finally released into a world that had been completely altered by what they had accomplished on the moon three weeks (laughs) earlier. Upon returning to Earth, the astronauts were able to watch recordings of the TV coverage of the mission, including excited crowds watching around the world, you know, people filling up these big public areas to watch. I think this is when they really realized the scope of the impact their mission had on the world. Uh, They've been away from the world when all this had happened, and and very often during the Apollo missions and even in uh, previous programs, you know, Capcom would read some headlines in the morning, but I don't think that really filled in the picture of what they uh, what they had done, what was happening when they were gone. Uh, Buzz Aldrin said during his time in the LRL, Neil, we missed the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, you missed moon landing. You were too busy on the moon. You didn't get to say have any of the fun of the moon landing. Um, after Apollo 14, the quarantine protocol was actually abandoned. Uh, as all of humanity had finally confirmed, the moon was entirely sterile. There were no space bugs, moon bugs. Uh, so the only four Airstream trailers were ever converted for use at the cost of about a quarter of a million dollars to be the post-splashdown camper. And the extraterrestrial exposure law was finally revoked in 1977. Let's talk a little bit about the crew and their lives after Apollo 11. Neil Armstrong left NASA in 1971 became a professor of aerospace engineering at the University of Cincinnati, where he taught until 1980. He served on many corporate boards and was the vice chair of the Rogers Commission that investigated the Challenger disaster in 1986. In the 90s, he hosted an aviation documentary series on the A&E network and died of complications of coronary bypass surgery in 2012. I did a little reading up about his time at the University of Cincinnati, uh, which was only nine years, but I, I didn't know this. Apparently, he was a full-force teacher at the University of Cincinnati. He taught class. Neil Armstrong, in 1972, was teaching multiple classes a year to engineering students at the University of Cincinnati. Imagine being in one of those classes. And apparently, he not only taught classes, but he also sort of designed and built other classes that were taught by him and other people. So he, those nine years, eight, nine years when he was at the University of Cincinnati, apparently he was very serious about being a, a teacher and teaching an, uh, the next generation of aerospace engineers, which is uh, not something I knew about Neil Armstrong. It's pretty cool. Buzz Aldrin, meanwhile, was involved in early discussions about the space shuttle design, but he ultimately left NASA in 1971, returning to the Air Force, and uh, mostly because he realized he'd probably never go to space again. He retired from the Air Force the next year in 72. Um, After spending several years struggling with depression and alcoholism, um, he did become involved in a lot of business ventures. He became and is to this day a high-profile advocate for human spaceflight, including recently going to Mars. Um, He notably 
punched an infamous moon hoax conspiracy theorist in the jaw. I love that. I mean, I'm not really pro-violence, but if you're Buzz Aldrin and, and there's a guy who says you didn't land on the moon, you can get in a pop. I'm going to be okay with that, honestly. It's just, sure. come on. Yeah. Come on. Uh, and as of this recording of this episode, he is 89 years old and lives in Florida. After Apollo 11, Michael Collins became the Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs for uh, a whole year. Uh, but then became the director of the new uh, National Air and Space Museum from 1971 to 1978. He oversaw the museum being built on budget and uh, in time for the bicentennial celebration back in 1976. He then became the undersecretary of the Smithsonian Institution. As of this recording, he is 88 years old and lives in Florida. I had no idea that Michael Collins was the guy who basically helped get the air and space museum built i had no idea but that's so cool yeah it is cool at this vantage point of 50 years it is clear that the apollo program is one of humanity's most impressive technological achievements neil armstrong and buzz aldrin's time on the surface of the moon is really an indelible moment for all of humanity but why some say the moon why choose this as our goal and they may well ask why climb the highest mountain why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. We shall send to the moon 240,000 miles away from the control station in Houston, a giant rocket more than 300 feet tall, the length of this football field, made of new metal alloys some of which have not yet been invented, capable of standing heat and stresses several times more than have ever been experienced, fitted together with a precision better than the finest watch, carrying all the equipment needed for propulsion, guidance, control, communications, food, and survival on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body, and then return it safely to Earth re-entering the atmosphere at speeds of over 25,000 miles per hour, causing heat about half that on the temperature of the sun, almost as hot as it is here today, and do all this, and do all this, and do it right, and do it first, before this dictator's out, then we must be bold. It was driven by political motivations, most notably a Cold War desire to beat out the Russians at something in space, but perhaps more damning is that 50 years later, humanity has not set foot anywhere else in the solar system. And since the last Apollo missions, no one has even returned to the moon. In the aftermath of the Apollo 11 moon landing, the accomplishment was viewed by many as humanity's first step into life as a spacefaring culture. Now, these days, we have to view it as a remarkable accomplishment, but a singular one. Yeah, I think that's right. Perhaps in the future, when people go to Moon and then on to Mars, as is the current plan, our view of Apollo 11 will shift once again. Maybe it'll be the first of many new giant leaps for humankind. 
I wonder who those people will be. Are, are they alive right now? Will we see this in our lifetimes? Yeah, how we view the story does keep changing. But important point, the story itself cannot be erased. On July 20th, 1969, human beings put their boots in the powder of the lunar surface. It was a remarkable moment in human history. And as for the next moment, it's yet to be written. If you want to learn a lot more about Apollo 11, our show notes this week are just full of links. You can see those on our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 103. While you're there, you can get in touch via email. There's also a link in the sidebar to our blog where we uh, post stories and, and links and stuff in between episodes. And of course, you can find us on Twitter as well. Jason is there as Jay Snell, and you can follow me there as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.